just eternity. It's all right, isn't it? And uh, God is working out his purposes. And, and I just want to encourage you that wherever God sends you, wherever God takes you, whatever God tells you to do, do it. It's a good thing to trust the living God. It's a good thing to step out in faith, even if you don't have all the answers. And some of us are being encouraged to do that day by day. In fact, I think all of us are. All of us are being encouraged to do that day by day in ways we don't always understand. And God sometimes puts his finger on something in your life and you say, but, but, but that's, I didn't want you to touch that bit, God. And God says, tough sometimes. That's the very bit I want to touch. It's the very thing I want to change. It's the very thing I want you to grow in. Trust me. Trust me, trust me. And I just want to commend Domina Lisa to you for trusting God in this season and for being completely open with us. Nothing has been hidden in this process. This hasn't come as a great surprise to us, um, though the timing we weren't expecting, but we've known about this for a long time because they've been open and transparent and faithful as well as faith-filled. So use that as an example of trusting God. We've been looking for, if we could have these slides up, please. Thank you. We've been looking for a series called More for a few weeks, and that's come out of a heart and a desire that I believe God wants to do more amongst us. Do you agree? God wants to do more amongst us than we've already seen. God, there's more that God can do amongst us. And I talked once a few weeks ago about preparing for more. We talked about um, God's, the fact that the best is still to come. We talked, uh, Lisa talked last week for us about not giving up what we want most for what we want now. And that was a challenging message, wasn't it, that she shared last week. And this is actually completely in line with that, that we're going on a slightly different direction now because I want to just tell you a secret. It's not a very good secret because I'm telling lots of people. But it's this. I think God has already given or made available all that he's got to give. When we're asking God for more, I think God has already made available or given what he everything he's already got to give. He's already given Jesus. How, how much did Jesus hold back? Anything? He gave everything, didn't he? He gave absolutely everything for us, and Jesus said, I've got to go to be with the Father, and unless I go, he, he can't send the Spirit, and, and that's better for you than if I stay. I'm paraphrasing. I'm using the Albert message version, where you add bits in as you're going along. That was good. Good preacher's technique. He said, I've got to go, and then the Father will send the Spirit to be with you, and that's better, because the Spirit will remain with you. He'll teach you everything I've taught you. He'll remind you of things I've taught you. He'll empower you for witness. He'll, he'll be with you, and in my name, you'll do greater things than I've ever done. And so that we, we kind of have this tension, really, between knowing that there's more of God that we haven't yet seen, and yet actually seeing that God's given everything that we need. And so we kind of live in the gap between those two. And I want to talk about that this week and then over the next few weeks to unpack this theme of holy grace. And just to help us with this, just to, I took the, the Bible college students, the two students we had last week from IBT, I took them out Wednesday afternoon, not this week, but the week before. I took them out to Hever Castle. And uh, I like it there. Brian and Sue took us there uh, years ago, soon after we'd first come to the church, and fond memories of that day as they were showing us around and... Uh, showing us all about it. But just imagine that I'd taken the students to Hever Castle and we'd pulled up in the car park, we could see the church, and we'd, we kind of got into the grounds, enough to go to the little shed where you pay your money. You may never have been, but you get to a little shed and you pay your money, 
And from there, you can just about glimpse the, the undulating land going down towards what you think probably is the castle in the distance. That's what you can see at that point. Now, just imagine we'd paid our money, got the tickets, and just stood by the ticket booth, car park behind us, church to the right of us, undulating land going down, a couple of trees, public toilets, and a glimpse of the castle. But we'd stayed there. That's the kind of image that I want to present to you, because that's always an option. You can pay, you can get in, but just stand at the entrance and survey the scene from a distance. Hever Castle had provided everything for my enjoyment at that point. Everything was there for me to go around. I could go and, I don't know if you can swim in the lake, I wasn't planning to, um, but you can go and have a walk around and delight in everything that's there. You can go and look at your history and discover all sorts of things if you want to, but I've actually got to do something about it, about that process of going from the gate and exploring the grounds. Does that make some sense? Just have that image in your mind as we look at some scriptures today. There's a new series we're looking at, and it's really today, I'm unpacking three words uh, for us today, and then we're going to see these over the next few weeks. So the first word, hopefully if this will work for me. Oh, can you just make sure we clicked onto the easy worship? Thank you, there we go. That's the first one. Holy. Because I believe that whole, wholeness is a key part of what God wants to do, us giving ourselves wholeheartedly to God. I also believe, oh, we're not going to work. Can you? There we go. Thank you. Barry, can you come and sort this one out for me? The second thing is that God has called us to be holy. And I believe that as we give ourselves wholly to God, we are led into being holy. And that can be a little scary, but it doesn't need to be. Obi, please, the third one. And grace. Because I believe that all of this is a work of God's grace, the transformation that God does in us, the work he does in us to transform us as we give ourselves wholly to him and he makes us holy is all a work of grace. And everything we see is a work of grace. It's all God's goodness to us. It's not a curse. It's actually a gift to us. Now, we're going to have a look at a Bible story And uh, I feel like I've had an arm chopped off right now, but Obi's going to help me at the back. Thank you. This is the first slide. And this is what uh, we're going to see. One story from the New Testament and one story from the Old Testament and a couple of little snippets in between. But I want us to see wholeness, holiness, and grace from this story and see how somebody encountered God and came away with more. Luke chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him the more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. 
You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The many the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a powerful story, isn't it? It's actually an unusual story culturally for us, thank you, because we're not used to having people invading our dinner parties. You're not used to having people bursting in when you've got guests and doing something as unusual as this woman did in this scenario. But actually, culturally, this wouldn't have been... It's bizarre, but it's not completely bizarre because if you were a Pharisee, a religious person, uh, you were often opening up your home to have guests, but also you'd leave the doors open uh, so that people could see in what was going on. And some of the poor would be able to come and maybe get some bits of scraps of food and maybe get a little bit looked after. So people would be able to come in around the edges, kind of a public-private dinner party, if you like. So it's not unusual that anybody could come, but it was quite unusual that this woman came on this day, to Simon's house. Very different kind of story from what we're used to. And the first thing we see is the woman's wholehearted response to Jesus. The picture we have is of a very broken woman with deep determination. The line that's on the middle of that passage there says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. I wonder, I spent some time just wondering what it might be like to be labeled like this woman is. To be the one in the town who's labeled as the woman who lives a sinful life. What would that be like? Because it's obviously public knowledge. We know, it's recorded forever, but Simon knows, as we'll see later on, he knows what this woman's like. It seems it's kind of obvious that everybody should know what this woman's like. And I just wondered what it might be like to live like this woman where everywhere you go around the town, you're observing people whispering and talking. You're observing people pulling their kids or husbands away. You're aware of people making a response to you as you just go about your life or you try to. We don't know much about her. But I can imagine that that wouldn't have been very easy. I imagine she'd kind of developed layers of defense mechanisms and a way of coping, and and she'd kind of pretended she was okay, but actually this passage shows us that she isn't okay. Whatever presentation she gives to others, when she hears that Jesus is coming to town, something changes, something snaps in her. And she picks up a jar of perfume and she, she goes to the Pharisee's home. She goes. And she stands behind Jesus. uh, Some some of you will know this, but um, it says there that Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So the tables would have been low to the ground, and and the guest would have reclined, leaning on a left arm and eating with the right. That's what would have happened, lying down almost, eating. Imagine that being quite messy if it's soup or curry, or spaghetti, or something like that. But anyway, that was the, that was the pattern. Um, lying down, eating with one hand. 
And this woman comes up. Jesus' feet would have been away from the table. And she comes up and stands behind Jesus. She's not taking a prominent place, but she's quite obvious. But she stands there behind him, and she's weeping. Now, most of us, if this was our home, you might have felt a bit miffed because you'd kind of got a special meal ready and you'd got the guest of honor coming and this had been your opportunity, if you're Simon the Pharisee, a religious person, to have this teacher come to your home. Wouldn't that be pretty cool to have Jesus in your home? And suddenly this woman's coming and you might respond like that. This drama queen's arrived. How dare she? Maybe that would have been your response. Maybe you'd have been more compassionate and you'd have got her a box of Kleenex out and tried to help. But it seems as though she just stands there and weeps. And everybody carries on while she's weeping. Now, that would have made a bit of a mess, and it would have made some sound. And This woman's brokenness is available for all to see. And then she goes further than that, and she wipes his feet, or wet his feet with her tears. And then she wipes them with her hair, and she kisses his feet, and she pours her perfume on them. We don't know what's happened up to this point. We don't know whether there's been some kind of revelation she's had that God loves her. We don't know if she's already discovered Jesus before and found his, heard his teaching or listened to him. We just know that something, knowing that Jesus was there, was enough for this woman. And she left everything to go. And when she got to the place where Jesus was, she gave everything. There's not a, she didn't have much honor in this town anyway, very tiny bit. What she presented was about her her only honor. But even that she gave up at the point of meeting Jesus. She gave everything. She she had nothing left to give. The perfume, the tears, the, I guess, the snot, everything was just there. This is very kind of human, messy devotion to Jesus. Everything she had, she poured out. And you know, this this might be uncomfortable for us, but the truth is that everything God has, he's already given. I believe. Another occasion, Jesus was with the disciples, and one of them said, Philip said to him, oh, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. (laughs) Show us the Father. And Jesus' response is on the bottom of the screen. It says, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. And this is where Jesus is chatting to the disciples and this sense that maybe they could know God the Father, God as their Father, became very powerful. Wow, that would be great. Yeah, Jesus, thanks very much. You've been great, but we really want to see the Father. Kind of the upgrade. We've seen you, but can we have the better version, the more of, the, the best of, this bit more that we've not yet had? And Jesus says, duh, if you've seen me, you've seen him. I'm, I'm presenting the Father to you. I'm making him available. I'm making him accessible I'm giving everything I've got, and this is God giving everything to you. God has given himself wholeheartedly. The disciples needed to know Jesus, and then they would know the Father. Yes, I believe we can experience more of God. I believe that God has more to give. But I actually believe that that's not because God hasn't already given. Because it's, I believe it's because we've got more to discover, more to explore. Like the Heber Castle analogy, another corner to turn around and go, oh, that's a nice view from there. Another bit to uncover, another bit to see. 
or actually we're wholeheartedly responding to the opportunity that God's already given. If you think about it with friendships, I think it works in a similar way with our friendships as well. If you get to know somebody a bit and that you become friends together, you've got many opportunities to take that friendships in different, those friendships in different directions. You can at many points choose to deepen the relationship, keep it the same, or lessen it in its intensity and its, its depth. At many points in our friendships, we're making these choices without actually realizing it. By the information we share, by the things we do together, by, by what we withhold, by how we respond, by how much time we spend together. And day by day, we make those sometimes unnoticed choices to deepen, withdraw, or keep a friendship the same. And you know that the friends you've got that are the closest to you and the deepest friendships and the most value to you, the ones who, when they say a word of correction or challenge, it hurts, but you know that they love you, those friends are worth their weight in gold. They really are. But that takes intentional investment. The other option is just to keep everybody at arm's length a little bit, to keep ourselves slightly safer. And we don't have so many of those friends then. And it's not that those friendships aren't available always. Sometimes they aren't, or they're hard to find. But sometimes it's because we we just need to withdraw for a season or for a time. Because that gives us a sense of safety. I want to encourage you that you don't need to be safe with God. But the safest place is to abandon yourself to him, to say, God, I give you everything. I give you the whole lot. I've never played poker, but I think you can go all in, where you put your chips all in. You say, that's it, everything's in. Is that right? Or you, don't, you probably don't want to nod, do you? If you've ever heard about it, just am I right on that? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, somebody's heard from somebody else, from somebody else, so that's probably what happens. So we're okay. So you go all in. Everything's in the middle. Well, that's the response I'm wanting to encourage today because I believe that's what God's already done for us. Just to help us, I believe that God is actually looking for this in people. There's a story where Jesus has a rich guy come to him. He's a religious man. And the guy says, you're a good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is interesting. And they chat about the law, and they chat about some of the commands of God, and they chat about the, the things that religious people need to do. And the religious guy says, well, I've done all that since I was a boy. Since I was a young lad, I've done all those things. I've kept those laws. And Jesus says this to him. When he heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. And he says to him, Jesus says to the guy, go and sell everything you've got and give your money away to the poor. And the next bit of the Bible says that the man went away sad because he was a rich man. And let me just point you to that thing on the screen. There's words on the screen. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. What did the man lack? Anybody? It wasn't money. He had loads of money. Maybe faith. Maybe. Surrender. I think it's surrender. I think the man lacked lack. If that makes any sense. Not the Ikea table, the little one. That's a lack table. Not one of those. But he lacked lack. He, he lacked lacking anything. He had everything. And the stuff he had was filling his hands. He had so much of it that actually he didn't have open hands to grab hold of what God wanted to give him. His capacity was full, but it was full of his religious life and it was full of his money 
and it was full of other things, and actually he didn't have any lack. He didn't have any desire, really, to, to receive from God really any real desire to let go of what he had and grab hold of God. And we, in this church, encourage people, many churches, encourage people to make a personal response to Jesus. Not just to go to church, not just to, to try and live a good life, though those things are really good, but actually to make a personal response to Jesus. So to look at Jesus and say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that he died for me, and I believe that I can live for him. I believe that he can take away my sin, wash me clean, and give me a brand new start. We encourage people to make that choice, to choose Jesus. And our, our little children have gone to their groups up here, some out the back and some downstairs. And, and you and I know, we've been around church a while, that when children hear this message of a God who loves them and one who cares for them, and, wants, uh, and this challenge to respond to God, some are eager to respond. And at four years old, or even younger, some will say, yes, that's me, I want to respond, and I want to follow Jesus. And do you know what I do? Whenever I hear that, I celebrate that. Because that child has made a meaningful, sensible, personal choice to follow Jesus. As a four-year-old. That's great. Do you know what happens when they get to four and a half, and the same message is presented? They go, some of them go, yes, that's me, I want to follow Jesus. Do you know what I do then? I celebrate it and rejoice with them because that four-and-a-half-year-old has made a a four-and-a-half-year-old decision to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus with all that I've got, with all that I am. When they get to five, I'm not going to carry on, but when they get to five, some of them go, yeah, that's me. I want to follow Jesus. I celebrate that, and we should too. Don't belittle it and go, well, make your mind up. Which one is it? It doesn't matter because with their growing revelation and their growing maturity, many have got to a point where they go, yeah, I I do want to follow Jesus. Maybe there's a bit more understanding and maybe there's a bit more of them that they've discovered that they want to give to him too. That's great. And I think that illustration is true for us as adults too. You know, us wrinkly ones. That's what the kids call us anyway. Us adults, it's true for us still. I I hope that we're not just looking back on a day, those of you who have made that personal decision to follow Jesus and saying, well, I've done it, that's it. Because I think actually there's a sense of a growing revelation where God says, will you follow me? And you go, yeah, I will. It doesn't give you a new salvation date. You, you became a Christian at this point. But actually there's a growing revelation. I've had this too, where God's put his finger on something and it's as if I've never given it to him. And I thought I'd given him everything. Do you know? And so you're at this point you go, well, of course, Lord. Or there's a wrestle that goes on. And you go, well, God, I thought I'd given you everything and now you want this? And there's sometimes a sense of a heavenly silence where God waits for me to catch up. That's what I think happens anyway. When I'm saying to God, God, I thought I'd given you everything and now you want this, and he just waits for me to catch on that if I've given him everything, he'd have had that anyway. Because I'm a bit slower than God. And he's very patient with me. I believe God's looking for a wholehearted response where to this man he says... There's one thing you lack, the need of God, the desire for him. Let's go back to the woman in the story that we're looking at today. The woman in this story gave all her emotion, all her expression of love. She didn't care about shame. She gave it all. 
She gave it all to the one who'd been invited to come to a meal. She gave it all to one person, to Jesus. I said at the beginning that giving ourselves completely to God leads us towards holiness. And and I just want to pick up on that for a minute. See, holiness is sometimes an uncomfortable word. Uh, But I want to link it today with the word wholeness, because I think that holiness is massively linked with wholeness. And I think that some people get very scared by this word holiness, or holy, because it feels so distant from us, so other, so... And it doesn't mean that. It means purity. It talks about consecration. The word holiness means um, undivided as well. It can mean that it's untainted or separate. It often means separate or distinct. And that can feel quite distant from us. We're going to get to one Old Testament, Testament passage and then back to this woman again. As we look at holiness. Old Testament passage from the book of Isaiah. This is a guy who's a prophet. He speaks on God's behalf. And this is a vision that he has in... Uh, We don't know where he is. He has a vision of God filling the temple, but we don't know if he's in the temple or not. But anyway, this is the vision. As in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. These kind of angelic figures, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Let me just leave it there for a moment. That's an incredible picture. Incredible picture. If I'm saying to you, who wants to see more of God? Many people would go, yeah, I do. And I said, who wants to see more of this kind of God? And people would go, ooh. You know? Because this is a bit awesome. This is God in his holiness, and this, this sense of God being holy is presented not just here, but elsewhere in the Bible too. And It's interesting that the angelic beings are crying out, holy, holy, holy. In the Jewish culture, if you want to emphasize it, you say say something twice, but here, and in Revelation at the end of the Bible, it's a threefold declaration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He is holy. He is holy. He's high and exalted, says in the first verse, seated on a throne. You've got these beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. And it's a bit awesome. The doorposts and thresholds are shaking and the temple is filled with smoke. That's amazing. I remember having a conversation with somebody not too long ago when we were chatting about the Lord and I mentioned, his, I mentioned God's holiness and, and they recoiled and, and said, don't talk to me about God's holiness. They wanted to talk about God as Father and Abba and Daddy and but not as God as holy. And, and, and I want to just suggest today that you can't have one without the other. That God's both, and that's okay. I want to tell you why. Because if God is holy, he looks a bit scary, but if he's holy, and that means he's completely, complete integrity, there's no sin in him, there's no shame in him, he, he's different to us in that, because we are sin, sinners, we, well, we sin, and he doesn't. We were sinners. We're now saved. But we, we sin. We trip up. We fall over. We go our own way against God. And he doesn't do that. He's perfect and pure and holy. I want to suggest to you today that if he is those things, and I believe he is, then that also means that he's trustworthy. Because if he's unable to sin, that means when he says something, he will keep it. Because he's not going to lie to you. 
So God's holiness is the guarantee of his trustworthiness and his faithfulness, because if he says something, he's going to commit to it. It's also the guarantee of his love, because if God is holy and says he loves us, then he does. Everything flows from God's holiness. He's perfect in majesty. Because he's holy, he can be trusted. Because he's holy, he's faithful, and he loves us. He loves us without fault and without flaw. It means that he's not loving us for his own sake. Sometimes I heard it presented that God made people because he was a bit lonely. I need to say today that nothing could be further from the truth. God didn't need us, didn't need to create us, but he did out of love. He, did, he was already holy and complete. He didn't need us because he was a bit sad one day. You know? BBC Three had gone online and he couldn't access it anymore. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. God wasn't bored. He wasn't lonely. He was complete in himself, imperfect holiness, and that prompted creation of us. Just see what happens next in this passage. Isaiah's response is interesting. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Many of us can imagine responding like this. To say, God, I, I can't have anything to do with that kind of God, that kind of holy God, that kind of scary, big, different to me God. I'm ruined. But look what happens next. One of the seraphim, those scary beasts that's flying around crying at holy, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. It's picture language, so don't worry if this isn't all quite making sense. It's just picture language that's being used from this temple imagery. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Now, I've got three words at the top, holy, holy, and grace. And the three words are slightly different order in this story. It's not as neat as it was in the first one. But here, Isaiah sees God's holiness first. And he makes, at the end, a wholehearted response to God. Because God says, who's going to go? I need to send somebody. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. But in the middle, I just want to focus on what happens in the middle. When Isaiah pulls back and says, I'm not worthy, God get away, God leans in. You notice that? When Isaiah pulls back, God leans in. And he does this time and time again. In the middle of his holiness and his integrity and his righteousness, God leans in to the sinners. Me, you. He leans in and he comes close. He doesn't stand back aloof and distant separate in his holiness. His holiness, he's still holy, but he leans in towards us. That's grace. And when we see this woman in this story, she's come to Jesus. Interesting that she came to him, not to the Pharisees, not to the religious people, not to the righteous people who kept all the rules, who did it all right, who preached great messages, who had lots of followers. Who She didn't go to them, she went to Jesus and she went to the one who was holy and never sinned. She was probably, the commentators tell us, probably a prostitute. Jesus doesn't seem bothered by that. And in this place, which must have been incredibly scary for her to enter in many ways, because if you're that kind of woman with that kind of background, the very last place you want to go is to the place where you could risk judgment. 
And we need to be the kind of community where even if people are living very different lives from what we think the Bible says they should live, we welcome with open arms and say, welcome, we're following Jesus. Do you want to join us to follow Jesus? And it might mean there's some difficult conversations along the way as actually like there is in this woman where she goes out changed and she's not able to stay the same, but in that process there's a welcome and there's love and there's acceptance because God leans in with grace, even in his holiness, and we ought to do the same. In this passage, Simon says, or thinks in his mind, if only Jesus knew that, if he was a prophet, sorry, he would know what kind of woman this woman is. Jesus then calls his bluff. I do like this bit. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he goes on and unravels a story. And the story highlights that actually this woman has been forgiven much and loves much as a result. Uh, It's interesting that the passage says Jesus answered him because Simon is only thinking it in his mind. He's saying to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is. He's not, I don't think she said it out loud. He's just kind of thinking this thing and Jesus answers him. Interesting. God leans in. And Jesus' declaration over this woman is where we'll end today. Jesus' declaration is this, that Simon didn't put oil on his head as he should have done as an honored guest. But this woman has poured perfume on his feet. And her sins have been forgiven. Not because she poured perfume on his feet, but her sins were already forgiven. And she is pouring perfume on his feet as a token of that, as an outpouring of that. He then challenges Simon again. He says, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. And at the end of the passage, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God is calling us today to follow him. He wants us to have all there is to have, of his blessing, of his love, of knowledge of him. I believe the invitation is issued to come wholeheartedly to the one who loves us and who knows us. Many of us have responded positively to the thought that God wants us to have more. I'm suggesting today what I believe to be true from the scripture, what I've found true in my own life, that Actually, the way to obtain more of God is to give him more of me. And to say, God, here I am, wholly available. I don't feel holy, but I'm wholly available. And as I've made myself available, so God, by his spirit, has worked things out in me and is making us more holy. That's what the Bible says. Paul says, if you want to check how you're doing, check whether you're wholeheartedly following Jesus, then have a look at the fruit. Have a look at the fruit, see what's growing. If there's sexual sin, if there's anger, if there's resentment, if there's bitterness, if there's selfishness, if there's pride, then probably you're not wholeheartedly sowing into the Spirit. You're living a double kind of life where you're trying to follow God and actually you're also investing into the flesh, Paul calls it. But actually he says as well, if you 
if you look at the fruit and you notice that there's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, and you, you notice those fruits coming out of your life, then it shows that you've been sowing into the Spirit. You've been living wholeheartedly for God. I still find when I read those lists that I've got a long way to go. But it doesn't encourage me to pull back. It encourages me to hold my life open before God and say, God, I need you. I want more of you. And you know what happens? At that moment, God leans in. He leans into my life and to yours. Living with God at the center of our lives brings wholeness, leads us into holiness and a fresh discovery of God's grace. There's no other way to follow God. Don, would you come to the stage and the band come? We're going to finish there.